0: Well, good morning. Let's open up our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, and we're going to resume our monthly prayer service, or our monthly uh, prayer updates, we'll get to this in just a moment. Uh, For those of you who've been with us all year, the first Sunday of the month, we study a biblical prayer, and then we uh, pray that for our body uh, on Mondays through the course of the month. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 through 17 and if you're looking in your Pew Bibles it's on page 989. So if you want to just look at the page numbers in your Pew Bible 989 will get you there and I believe it's at the very bottom right-hand corner of the page. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we're going to study verses 13 through 17 and we have a title if you'd like a title for the sermon this morning it is Praying for Pillars, Praying for Pillars and We'll explain in a moment why the Apostle Paul would pray thus. This is the word of the Lord. But we ought, also, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you have been taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Father, give us grace this morning to understand your mind and to know better how we should be praying for each other. May this passage be an inspiration to us, and may we see our circumstances as very similar to those that these believers in Thessalonica faced. Lord, help us to see how your word has endured through the years and how it will continue to strengthen us and help us in challenging days. We're in them now, and we don't see any end to them, but we do have a blessed hope. We do have a good hope that the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. He will make this place the footstool for his feet, and we will rejoice in that day. So hope us to look forward to that in faith, knowing that in the end you will reign. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our children are up here with us today, and whenever we have the children not in Children's Church, I like to have a word at the very beginning for our kids. So, children, can I tell you a story about me when I was about Schaefer's age? Schaefer, remind me of how old you are. Yeah, Schaefer's nine. My son is nine, everybody. He's the third of my five, and so I'm entitled to forget how old he is by the span of two years, give or take. I think that's within the margin of parental error. Well, I was probably about nine. I was probably about nine, and my family growing up, children, we had a boat. It was a kind of a sport boat. And we would ski off the back of it and so forth, and we kept it in a shed near the lake where we would like to go out. One day, it was about this time of the year, in fact, if memory serves, it was over the 4th of July weekend, my family, we went out to the little shed where our boat was, and we were going to hook it up to the truck and take it out to the lake and go out for the day. When we got there, my dad fiddled with the lock, got, got it unlocked, and we opened the shed door, and children, do you know what we saw in the shed where our boat was? We saw nothing. The boat wasn't there. We were all a little bit confused by this, so my dad went down to the office uh, of the shed company, and I went off with him, ran off with him, and we walked into the office, and my dad explained what was going on, and the lady there was very helpful, and she explained that when my dad had called the boat mechanic to give the boat a tune-up, the mechanic uh, had taken the boat out for a little uh, test drive around the lake and he remembered that we would be coming in town that very day. And so he left word with the company, and he actually left the boat tied up at a dock at the marina, tuned up, gassed up, waiting for us. It was actually great news. We didn't have to do anything. We just drove to the lake, and we could go right out and have a good time. Well, children, this is where the story takes a turn, because... This is where I thought I would be funny, okay? Now, children, most of my terrible stories begin with this sentence. I thought it would be funny if. Don't have those thoughts. (laughs) I'm here to tell you. I decided it would be funny to play a prank on my mom. You adults know where this is going. Children, I, I ran off away from my dad and I ran to my mom and I told her, mom, the office told us that the boat was stolen. I don't know why I thought that would be funny. Please don't judge me, I was nine, okay? My mom said, what? I said, yeah, the guy said the boat was stolen. And my mom did something very unexpected. My mom burst into tears. And suddenly, I was a young man filled with regret. And children, I told my mom, No, mom, I was just kidding. The boat's at the lake. Well, then my mom said, Well, how do I know what's true? You tell me it's stolen. now. You tell me at the lake. And now she was crying even harder. And about that time, my dad showed up. And when he found out what was going on, he assured me that I would very soon be the one crying. Okay? And so, children. It's funny, it's funny what a lie can do, right? Lies always have unintended consequences, even if they're meant to be fun, even if they're meant to be funny or a prank, even if they're good-natured. But sometimes lies are not any of those things. They are meant to hurt people. And when those lies are spoken, those lies hurt people. And they hurt people in really unexpected ways ways. Paul is writing 2 Thessalonians. This is a letter written to a church suffering underneath of a lie. A lie has been told to this church. And this lie is having all sorts of consequences in the church, negative, negative consequences. And so Paul writes this letter to help them Understand what the truth is and how they ought to live, and he's innocence using this lie as a platform for good, and in a weird way we sort of benefit from it now. But it doesn't change the fact that it was hard for them at this time. And so, in the middle of dealing with this lie, Paul gives some instruction, he has this prayer, and then he gives some more instruction. we're going to study that prayer this morning and use it this month as a guide for our own praying. Let's get a little context. As I mentioned before, um, this year, uh, the first Sunday of every month, we're studying a prayer passage. And what I would like for our people to do is to take that passage, take what we learned, and be praying it on Mondays for our church body. Now, if you've ever wondered, how should I be praying for my church body? I don't know what to say on their behalf. Well, the good news is that Scripture gives us a lot of specific requests that we should be praying for each other. And so much the same is true here. Also, we're at the beginning of a new quarter, which is uh, we're going to change over our prayer partners. If you would like to join our prayer partnership program this coming quarter, please let Pastor Chris know immediately. If you would like to withdraw from the prayer partnership program for whatever reason, please also let him know right away. We'll get you partnered with a prayer partner, and then you've got your Monday and Tuesday prayer times covered. You're going to be praying for this passage this month, and you'll be praying for your prayer partner on Tuesday. So what does 1 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, what does, uh, what does uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 say in this prayer? Well, to do that, we need to understand the context that's going on, get a little understanding so that we can under, understand what exactly Paul is meaning by this prayer. In, for, in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, the apostle Paul has just gone to plant some churches. The Apostle Paul had planted some churches previously, but he saw a vision. A man in Macedonia and said, come over our way. And the Apostle Paul begins journeying into Macedonia. And unfortunately, just about everywhere that Paul goes, trial and turmoil follow him. He was just in the city of Philippi. And... He saw, a very, he saw some conversions there, but in the end, he was whipped and forced to leave the city. And as soon as he left that city, he went to Thessalonica. And in Acts 17, 1 through 10, you can see that the people of Thessalonica were much the same as the people in Philippi. Many people believed his message. He reasoned with the Jews. They rejected his message. He took it to the Gentiles. And the locals believed a lie about what Paul was saying. And they beat some of Paul's companions. Paul left Thessalonica because the disciples wanted him to. And he went to a city called Berea. But Paul had left in Thessalonica a group of Christians that as it turns out, were quite a strong group of people. These trials galvanized this group, and a church sprung up. And the Apostle Paul is concerned for their welfare. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 3.6, we find out that Paul sent his right-hand man, Timothy, to go check in on him. He said, Timothy, I'm here. I want you to go there. I want you to see how they are. And Timothy came back with a certain report. He said, hey... Things are going super in Thessalonica, but but there's some problems going on. There's a few false doctrines that have gotten introduced, and so Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. Another message got back to Paul, and Paul, in response to that, writes 2 Thessalonians, uh, and it's three chapters long. So that brings us right to the issue that I raised at the beginning. What was the lie being told to the people of Thessalonica and why did Paul need to address it? Turn with me back to 2 Thessalonians 1. It's chapter 2, verse 1, rather. Okay? In the same chapter we're in, Paul says, Listen, everybody. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed. Something is alarming them. Something is hurting them. Either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, somebody is lying to you and they're lying about me they've come to you saying that I've said something and I haven't. They're telling you that the Lord has already come. They wrote it in a letter. They pretended to preach it. I want you all to know that didn't come from me. Now, some of you might be thinking, Pastor Greg, I understand that that's a false teaching that, oh, you missed the rapture. You missed the People are coming, that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. you missed that. But practically, what would be the effect of that? What, what would happen to a group of people if they started to believe that they'd missed the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Paul addresses that in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. So look there with me. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Finally, brothers, pray for us. Now go down to verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according to the tradition, because we were not idle among you. Paul's going to go on. He says in verse 12, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So let me put this very plainly. Somebody was lying to the church at Thessalonica. They said to this church, oh, you missed it. Jesus has already come back. And these people said, oh, well, the end of the world must be near. So you know what they did? They stopped working. They stopped paying their bills. They stopped cultivating their crops. They... Stop doing the day-to-day tasks, assuming that Jesus was going to be coming back tomorrow or the day after. In other words, we get out of life's responsibilities because Jesus is coming back so soon, and next thing you know, there's these people in the church who are a burden to the community and a burden to the church, and they're refusing to work on the flimsy theological promise that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. You can imagine what that might be like in our midst. There's a couple, and they've got, let's say, three children. And by and by, every week that goes by, those children look a little more haggard. The husband and the wife are losing a little weight. The quality of their clothing and of their vehicles begins to deteriorate rapidly. We find out that the children are having to go see uh doctors for diminishing care and we as elders or deacons we contact this family and we say hey is everything okay what's going on we're genuinely concerned and they say well yes you pastor we you know the lord is coming back any time now so you know husband quit his job we don't have medical coverage anymore um we're just trusting that the lord's going to come back and yeah the finances are getting pretty thin but jesus is coming back well we as a church would help them in the immediate. We wouldn't want them to suffer. But imagine if this went on 6, 8, 12 weeks, 6, 8, 12 months. We would start to say, okay, now it's time for you to start pulling your weight. You're, it's clear you're healthy, you can do this. And out of love, we would want them to begin contributing positively. That's the exact situation that's occurring here. A false idea of the Lord's coming is creating a drain on the church. And Paul instructs the church what the real theology is, and then he, in the third chapter, is going to encourage the church to continue in their good work, And sandwiched in between those two instructions and exhortations is this prayer. This prayer kind of falls right in the middle of those. So what is this prayer? This prayer has three distinct points to it. If you want to write those down, we'll move through them quickly. The first part of the prayer is thanksgiving. The second part of the prayer is encouragement. And the third part of the prayer is requests. Thanksgiving, encouragement, and requests. So we'll work through those quickly. If you'd like to write those down, we'll have them also up on the screen for you. Paul says that first, he says, as I'm praying for you, as I'm I'm praying for your church, as I've instructed you, the first thing that comes to mind is that I'm not scolding you for letting this error take place. He's not upset at them. He's upset at the person that lied to them, but he's not upset at them. He says, in fact, quite the opposite. In fact, if you, if you look at verse 13, look at the first word. It says, but, but. In other words, I realize I've just told you that people are lying to you. And I realize I just told you that you've entertained some false teaching, but. That hasn't affected my opinion of you. He says, quite the contrary. We ought also to give thanks to God for you. There's a presentness to this thanks. The verbs are all very present. Right now, right now, we are needing presently to be giving thanks for you right now. In fact, I can imagine that even as Paul was writing these words or speaking them to a secretary, Paul was in his heart offering gratitude for these very people. Paul says that he's thankful to God on their part because God took a three-part initiative in drawing these people to himself, notice how he praises all three members of the Trinity. He says, "Brothers, beloved by the Lord, as presumably the Lord Jesus Christ, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctification by the spirit and belief and in the truth. Here the Lord Jesus is active and God the Father is active and the Spirit of God is active. You are beloved Agapetas, you're Beloved by the Lord Jesus Christ, He gave Himself for you. He says, and I want you to know that as far as my missionary journeys are concerned, you have a special place in my heart because you were kind of the, when I began to go up into Macedonia, you were really the first church that was planted. Like, yes, I, I was in Philippi before that. And. A jailer was converted, and Lydia, the seller of purple, was converted. But that's hardly the start of a church. Whereas I went to Thessalonica, and you heard the word, you received it, not as the word of men, but as the very word of God, and you grew. And Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 through 10. And God says there, when you go into this new land, when you go into this new land, after three years, I want you to harvest your grain, and I want you to bake some bread from those first gleanings. Yesterday, Schaefer and I attempted something I had never attempted before. We made two loaves of bread from scratch. Yes, well, from from scratch, scratch, we didn't grind the flour ourselves. We bought baking flour, bread flour from the store. So we made bread. We actually had to bring it over here to the church to bake it in the oven here, and it smelled delicious, and, and I don't know if it tasted any good, but it tasted really good to us, okay? It was our first try, and we liked it. Well, that's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to bake bread and take this very first one Special significance. And take it and give it to the sojourner, or give it to the priest as a sacrifice, an offering. This is the first of what will be many. And Paul says, I arrived a sojourner in your country, a new land to me. Many, many people are going to come to know the Lord in a great harvest and you were the first. And I've offered you up as an offering, the first fruits. And Paul is so thankful for them. They've been set apart by the Spirit of God. Paul says, I'm grateful for you people. The people of Thessalonica believed and accepted, and they continue. These people are good people, and they're very sensitive to the things of the Lord. And as a matter of fact, if they have an Achilles heel, it's a, it's a byproduct of their strength. They're very tender-hearted to what the Lord tells them. And now somebody has come to them and said something that's not true, and that tender-heartedness kind of got turned on itself. And now they're believing something that they shouldn't. Nevertheless, Paul is so thankful for them and grateful for them not because of who they are, but because of what God has done in making them to be the people that they are. Friends, whenever we're in conflict with another Christian, and that can happen from time to time, we're all fallen people, I would like to invite you to remember what, God says about that person. Remember God's opinion of that person. And that's in a sense what Paul is doing here. These people are not in conflict per se. There is an issue that they're facing. And Paul is reminding them and reminding himself of who they are because of God. Secondly, Paul gives an encouragement. There's a a double uh, therefore, There's a, it says right here, it says um, in verse 14 and 15, So then, brothers, stand firm, the so and the then. It can literally translated. therefore, therefore. <laughs> it's a double conclusion. Because of who God has made you, because of who you are in the Lord, because Father, Son, and Spirit have been active in your lives, therefore, accordingly, be standing firm, he says. I want you to be grasping. This word uh, is present. It's an idea. Right now, attacks are coming at you, and I want you to be prepared to stand firm. And this idea of standing firm is is, is determined. There's a very strong connotation of determination here. The word stand firm is a military term. We covered this term when we were going through the book of Ephesians. Do you remember the the phalanx, the Roman unit? The soldiers would line up shoulder to shoulder, shield in one hand, sword in another. When they stuck together, when they held their ground, when they had their shoes that were essentially athletic cleats tied to their feet, and they stood shoulder to shoulder as a team, there was great safety and security. As long as they didn't break rank. Once they broke ranks, their shields were heavy and cumbersome. Their swords were too small to do them any good. And the unit could disintegrate in a moment. Standing firm together, they were almost unbeatable. If they grew afraid and broke ranks, they became a very weak military unit. And so Paul... Is encouraging them here. Stand fast, stand firm. Get shoulder to shoulder with your friend. Plant your feet. Put your shield up. Grab your sword and don't move an inch. He's using another word: grasp. It's a that it's a strong hand taking with it a strong hand. There was a season where I coached uh, junior high girls basketball. Let me tell you, I've coached a lot of sports and a lot of teams. They were my favorite group to coach of all time. My daughter's t-ball team probably should have been first place because we just got done with our season. But this was the second greatest, my second favorite group of all time. At the beginning of the season, though, I realized that the girls struggled to have strong hands. When the ball came to them, they would frequently fumble it. It would slip through their hands. When the opponent would slap at the ball, they'd get the ball out. And so during practice, we would take the ball, and I would have them just smack the ball as hard as they could. And I wanted to hear a good smack. And then I made them wear, you know, those little like 99-cent cotton gloves that you get at the grocery store? I had them put those on, and we would throw chest passes to each other. And if they didn't catch it with a firm hand, the ball would slip right through their gloves. They had to catch it with a firm hand. It's the idea of firmness. Grasp. Take hold. Grasp it. Paul says, stand firm. Take hold of this apostolic doctrine. Paul says, I've interacted with you at least three times now. I had an extended preaching stay with you. I wrote you 1 Thessalonians, I wrote you 2 Thessalonians. As a matter of fact, when Paul wrote the books of Ephes- uh, Ephesians and Philippians, those were likely books that got circulated to those people. Many copies were made, and they were likely read aloud in Thessalonica. And Paul says, I want you to grasp, I want you to take hold of what you've heard from me, and I want you to stand your ground on those. Don't let these fakes bully you. Don't let these people who are lying have their way. Don't let these idle people push you back into a corner. Stand your ground. Take hold of what I've taught. Now, the third thing that Paul's going to request is he's going to request comfort for our hearts, and he's going to pray for the establishment of our words and deeds. That's sort of where we're going. But these two requests flow from the goodness of God. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, notice that there's, again, the, all three members of the Trinity are present here, especially when you read that word comfort. That's the word paraclete, paraclesis, Okay, The word for the Spirit, comfort. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Again, Paul's going to make three requests based on what God has done for us. He says, I'm going to make requests for you based on the love of God for you. What is the love of God? Romans 5.8. In this, God's love demonstrated to us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't while we were good people. It was when we were bad people. Our intern, Andrew Fletcher, preached this morning from 1 John 4. What, what is the love of God? It, it's not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation from our sins for our sins. There's this divine initiative. God loves, but when he loves, he pursues. And he doesn't just love and keep it to where you have to be the one to make the first move and bridge the gap. God seeks you, God finds you, God loves you, God rushes to you, and God saves you. God is the great initiator. Based on that, based on the fact that Paul says here that he's given us great encouragement. Read here. He says, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. Eternal comfort. The word comfort, as I said before, is the same word that Jesus uses in John 14, uh, John fourteen sixteen, 16, when he says, I'm going to send the comforter. And here, I, I think there's good reason to think that the Apostle Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit. He's given us The third member of the Trinity, a person whose job it is, whose function to fill us and encourage us and equip us. Part of that encouragement is the confrontation of sin, but part of it too is reassuring us that we're God's children. He cries into our hearts, Abba, Father. He teaches us to cry that. The Spirit is constantly encouraging and reassuring us. He's also given us a good hope, okay? Read right here. He says, he's given us a good hope through grace. This word good hope is a bit confusing. I think, I I won't get into the reasons why, as we're already running a little short of time, but I think what he's referring to there is Titus 2.13. You you definitely want to write that down as a cross-reference, but there we're told that we have a blessed hope. And what is the blessed hope? But the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The reason I think that is the Apostle Paul has just got done talking about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's correcting an error about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he says he's given us a good hope, he's telling us, guys, stand firm, take hold. Christ is coming back. And there will be incredible vindication for all those who follow him. Sometimes, sometimes you get clarity in a moment. Sometimes you get clarity in a moment. Sometimes it goes the other way. Let me illustrate. This was probably 10 years ago. We had an unseasonably dry winter. It snowed a little bit, and then it rained and rained and rained. I went downstairs and saw water cooling up in front of the windows for my basement. The water hadn't gotten into the house yet, but it was it was rising. It was soon to come in. And I did what I always do when trouble comes, I say, Danielle, get down here. <laughs> I gave her my credit card and she went and bought a sump pump and we pumped the water away from the house and we I had to dig the snow up to the top of the yard and built a sandbag wall and What we found out later was that a tree had fallen into the creek above us, and it diverted the water, and it was coming all at our house instead of down through the proper channels. And at the time, I thought, maybe I should get flood insurance. Why should I, though? I live on the side of a mountain. Who gets flooded when they live on the side of a mountain? Fast forward to 2023. I hear the distant echoing of heavy machinery. I didn't think too much of it. Shortly thereafter, a river of water is flowing straight at my house. We didn't find it out for about a week, but the distant machinery that we'd heard had diverted a water track. And the water, instead of going down its normal channels, came straight down at my house, and I called my wife, but she didn't pick up her phone. So I did the next best thing, and I called Nathan Ganino. okay? Fortunately, he had some sandbags, and my neighbor had some sandbags, and we were able to divert the water. But let me tell you, the water was running really heavy. And when I saw that water flowing at my house and then flowing very fast away from my house, what do you think went through my mind? I should have bought that flood insurance. <laughs> Friends, when the Lord comes back, there's going to be a whole lot of people saying, oh, no. And all of the joy that they had leading up to that moment will be gone. And they will be terrified at the sight of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And everybody who put their faith and trust in him will have a huge smile on their face. And every sacrifice, every moment of persecution, small or large, will shine in the light of the Lord's vindication and you will never be happier for it. That's what we have. It's a good hope. Paul says, because of that good hope, I'm going to pray that the Lord would comfort your hearts. I think we should understand this to mean to establish your religious affections. Remember, when a New Testament writer talks about the heart, he's talking more akin to what we would point to as our brain. I know that sounds different the way we think, but that's how they thought. When they thought emotions, they would point down here somewhere. Paul is praying because we have this good hope, because we have this grace, I'm praying that God would comfort your hearts, that he would establish your religious affections. It's a It's a builder's term. It means to construct in such a way that it will never move. You can do that. Maybe not forever, ever make it not move, but get pretty close. And that's what he's saying, deep foundations. Number two, I'm praying. Oh, I'm sorry. I said comfort your hearts. I misspoke there. That he would paraclete our hearts and then here that he would establish your words and deeds. And that's the word to forever fix your effectiveness for God. Okay? To make permanent your words and your deeds, your effectiveness for God. So what, are, what is Paul thinking in terms of these people? Number one, he's thankful for them. Number two, he wants them to be established. And number three, he's praying that as God establishes them, that they would be comforted and strengthened for that task. Does that make sense, everyone? Now, I have two examples of how I would like us to pray this, this month. And then we'll wrap up. I'm going to pick on Pastor Dom because he's here and he's a co-pastor and I figure he's he's a safe person for me to pick on, okay? So I'm going to pray and I'm going to just use him as an example and you'll see this in here. As we pray these words for each other this month, I want us to start with praise for specific people in specific ways. Okay, Pray for specific people in specific ways. Give thanks for them. Here's an example. Lord, thank you for Pastor Dom. His faithfulness preserved and inspired me these many years. Now, I can put easily a half a dozen, or not a half a dozen, a full dozen at, at least, specific examples into that phrase. And when I'm thanking God for Pastor Dom, I will recount those. Thank you for that, and thank you for this, and thank you for that time several years ago, and thank you when he helped me At this time, and as I recount them, I'll remember others. So, get a specific person in mind, thank God for them, and thank them for specific ways that they've been a blessing to you. Secondly, let's continue with specific requests for that same person, according to 2 Thessalonians 2. So I would say, please encourage Pastor Dom as he encourages us. May his comfort spring from the well of your love, hope, and grace. So that the encouragement we get from him is straight from your hand. In other words, so, in comfort, so comfort and encourage Pastor Dom that he would have more to spare <laughs> and he would give it out plentifully, and what we get is the spillover from what you're giving him. Hold him up. May he remain faithful. And you can see how we're tying those to very specific passages, to this very specific passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. Well, I do hope you'll be praying these words for our body this month, I also hope you'll come back tonight for our upreach, where we'll put some of this into practice. And last, I hope you'll stick around for the Lord's table, which we're about to partake of. Nathan's going to come and sing a song. If you didn't build it into your schedule, and you have to take off, we understand. And there will be uh, no buzzers going off uh, if you have to leave. Um, But if you've asked the Lord Jesus to save you from your sins... And you want to remember his broken body and shed blood for you, please feel free to stick around. Your moment to slip out will be now, as needed.